An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Did you know that most salads travel over 2000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Overall, the FDA has had a number of spectacular hits and pretty notable failures. And it is worth asking, how good of a job is the agency doing and are they living up to their mandate to protect the public health? My boss at the time said, Richard, we don't have to solve problems. All we have to do is appear to solve problems. Welcome to Calling Bullshit, the podcast about purpose washing, the gap between what an organization says they stand for and what they actually do and what they would need to change to practice what they preach. I'm your host, Ty Montague, and I've spent over a decade helping organizations define what they stand for, their purpose, and then help them to use that purpose to drive transformation throughout their business. Unfortunately, at a lot of institutions today, there's still a pretty wide gap between word and deed. That gap has a name, bullshit. But, and this is important, we believe that bullshit is a treatable condition. So when our bullshit detector lights up, we're going to explore everything the organization should do to fix it.
there was a time in the not-too-distant past when cocaine was marketed to children and literal snake oil was sold as medicine, a time when sawdust was put into food as filler and when rats were ground up with the beef. And it was all perfectly legal. Food and drugs were sold in a completely unregulated market until... President Theodore Roosevelt signed into law the Food and Drugs Act of 1906, giving the executive branch the power to regulate food and drugs, and thus creating what we now call the FDA. Today, the Food and Drug Administration has an expansive jurisdiction, regulating things ranging from microwave ovens to catnip to ibuprofen and beyond, way beyond. Chew on this. The FDA regulates 20 cents of every dollar that you spend. To cover such a broad waterfront, they employ 18,000 people that work across several interagencies, including the Center for Drugs, Biologics, Devices, Veterinary Medicine, Food Safety and Nutrition, and Tobacco. Their formal purpose is a few paragraphs long. But on the homepage of their website, they have a phrase that nicely captures the spirit of it. And it reads, Today, as in the past, the FDA strives above all else to safeguard the health and well-being of the American people. That is a monumentally important purpose, one in which the stakes for all of us are high. However, if you've been listening to the news lately, it seems like the FDA is falling pretty short of living up to it. Speaking about the epidemic of youth use of e-cigarettes, in retrospect, the FDA should have acted sooner. Nationwide, 43% of baby formula stock is gone. Part of the blame for a lot of these shortages rests at the feet of the FDA. In 1995, the FDA first approved OxyContin. Since then, more than 500,000 people have died from opioid-related overdoses. We've actually encountered the FDA twice before. First, when discussing their role regulating Juul and again while researching Purdue Pharma for a potential episode. The FDA was certainly a character in the first Juul episode, but when we checked in on Juul again this season, it was clear that the FDA shared a lot more of the blame for the damage caused by Juul's unregulated product. And so, we decided to aim our BS detectors directly at the FDA starting with picking up the strange case of big tobacco, vaping, and Juul. Okay, folks, I am very excited to introduce Lauren Etter for her second time on the show. Lauren, thank you for being here, and welcome back to Calling Bullshit. Thanks for having me, Ty. Great to be here. Lauren is the author of The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation. But before we continue the conversation with Lauren, let's catch you up on the escalating story of the regulator and the company with a BS Roundtable recap. Okay, so Juul Labs launched its Juul e-cigarettes as a smoking cessation device in 2015. It was actually effective and had the potential to help smokers get off cigarettes. But Juul was funded by venture capitalists with a growth-at-all-cost mindset. 
which led them to target kids, the demographic most susceptible to picking up a smoking habit. Thus sparking a new youth nicotine epidemic. Total BS. But at the time, e-cigarettes were totally unregulated. Finally, in 2016, the FDA began regulating e-cigarettes as tobacco products and requiring manufacturers to submit applications to be on the market. And guess what? Juul Labs didn't get around to submitting their application to the FDA until July 30th, 2020, all while they were still selling Juul. More BS. You would think the story ends here, but it doesn't. It then took the FDA two more years to review Juul's application. All the while, Juul's are still being sold. Finally, in June of 22, the FDA announced their decision to deny Juul Labs' application, essentially banning the e-cigarette. Their reasoning? Juul did not provide enough scientific data to show that their products were not harmful. Not surprisingly, Juul Labs immediately sued and within a few days was granted an emergency stay, allowing them to keep their products on the market. And now, the FDA has walked back their decision and is currently re-reviewing the application, leaving Juul, you guessed it, still on the market. And, and that, that's your round table. <laughs> I think we have different internet connections. And that's your roundtable recap. The FDA website says today, as in the past, the FDA strives above all else to safeguard the health and well-being of the American people. So first, I just wanted to ask you, how do you think they're doing at meeting their mission or achieving their purpose? I would say just in general that with tobacco, for many years until the early 2000s, the agency didn't have any jurisdiction over the tobacco industry. It was a completely unregulated market. And it was only after the master settlement agreement and after the tobacco companies had gotten crushed in that whole ordeal, when, you know, for years, Congress tried to figure out how to regulate tobacco. The Supreme Court even at one point said that they didn't have jurisdiction. So this has been an issue. Like, where should the tobacco industry sit? Does it make sense for the FDA to regulate this industry. But for years, there's industry was totally unregulated. So I think that there's a lot of questions worthy Absolutely. of asking about the FDA and certainly about their role in the regulation of tobacco. You may remember that we we score organizations on their level of BS. Would you be comfortable giving the FDA a score, even as it relates to the Juul situation of zero to 100 in terms of gaps between word and deed? So if you look at what the agency is doing in the tobacco, the overall kind of tobacco space and their efforts to implement a harm reduction framework, they're actually making strides. My issue is I don't feel like the FDA has enough resources to police the kind of the illicit sale of the product to keep it out of the hands of the youth. They're just a very underfunded agency, especially the Center for Tobacco Products. And so if you're looking at the twin problems of adult smoking and youth nicotine addiction, I feel like they are focusing quite a bit on the adult smoking issue. And then the youth nicotine addiction issue, I don't know if I have enough confidence that they're going to be able to ultimately keep this highly addictive product out of the hands of kids, which is ultimately the goal to stop a new generation from becoming addicted. So can I give them a score? Um, I just don't know if I feel comfortable settling on a, on a number. 
Yeah, I that's mean, okay. But uh, it's it's definitely not the best number, zero, right? They're bumbling their way through this. And let's just say with best of intention, right, they have failed to protect America's youth so far from vaping, which is, at the end of the day, an extremely efficient delivery system for what ought to be a controlled substance, in my view. Right. But the FDA is constantly barraged with this flood of new products, and they're constantly on their heels responding to these like rapidly innovating markets. It makes it very difficult for them to contain this, again, highly addictive product that's being sold at 7-Elevens and, you know, corner stores around the country that not all of them have the greatest ID checking abilities. So I admit it's a very difficult task for them to do. I think it should be one of the most important tasks that they undertake. And I know that they're taking it seriously. I'm just concerned that they might not have enough resources to adequately keep these highly addictive products out of the hands of young people. Is the FDA's lack of resources the reason they fumbled through regulating e-cigarettes and Juul in particular? Lauren thinks so, or at least she thinks it's a significant part of it. And although she deferred on giving them a BS score, she does believe the FDA is making strides. No doubt, it is an incredibly challenging undertaking. But if your purpose is to safeguard the health of the American people and a new generation gets addicted to nicotine on your watch, it's definitely a harbinger of bullshit. But maybe the Center for Tobacco Products is an outlier? Considering the FDA covers so much ground, I'm going to reserve judgment and see what's cooking at their second biggest interagency, the Center of Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. With food specific, we're trying to do a little more because we don't want to just make food safe. We want to give consumers information that help them to choose a healthier diet. Richard Williams worked at the FDA for nearly three decades, and he left the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition with a bad taste in his mouth. I think the big thing was, as I approached the end of my 27 years, it occurred to me in all those years that most of what we had done had not succeeded. And so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, what actually happened? What went wrong? And I thought maybe if I could write a book about it, we can start changing things and and actually solving things for consumers. Richard's book, Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myth and the solutions is an eye-opening account of his tenure at the organization, beginning when he was hired as their very first economic analyst. You can blame it on President Carter. Uh, President Carter was the first one who said, we, we need some economic thinking in these particularly social regulations. More and more presidents began insisting that we do these things and that we take, take them into account so we can make better decisions. Let's talk about your job and some of the eye-opening parts of your book, because you, it sounds like, walked into that job with the best of intention. You wanted to help the FDA achieve its mission of making people safer. One of the first assignments that you had was to do a cost-benefit analysis on lead acetate in men's hair dye. I wondered if you would tell us that story. Sure. That was the first one just assigned to me. All I had to go by was the executive order and what I knew from from being an economist. 
So I jumped into it and found out that this is, was basically the thing that you put in your hair and over time it takes the gray away. Richard wanted to know if using lead acetate could cause skin cancer. And after a deep dive into the toxicology, he found that the risk was near zero. Thus, there was no benefit to banning the drug. There was, however, a high cost to taking it off the market. It was the only product of its kind available. So without it, gray-haired men would have no alternative. I mean, other than living with the fact that their hair was gray. I turned in my analysis, didn't think a thing about it until a couple of weeks later, a young woman had come down from the center director's office and she said, this is great, now we need you to do the other one. And I said, what other one? She said, well, you said the benefits were lower than the cost. And if we decide uh, not to do anything about lead acetate, that'll work. But we want you to do one that shows the exact opposite, that the benefits exceed the cost, that it does cause cancer. And I'm like, well, no, that wouldn't be honest. I'm not going to do that. And she said, you don't understand. This is an order, you know, from the sixth floor. And I said, no, wow, I'm not going to do that. I didn't hear anything more about it. A few weeks later, I was in our first, my first training class where I was getting my introduction to FDA. And the deputy center director was in there. And at lunch, I went up and I said, you know, a funny thing happened to me. And uh, I explained the situation. And he said, that order came from me. And you're going to do it or you're going to be fired. Oh, no. And I said something really stupid. I just made this up on the spot. I said, I'm not an economic prostitute. And he said, then you are fired. <laughs> <laughs> and you are going to be leaving this agency. And Good on you. So I went back to my office. I'm like, should I start packing up my stuff? I didn't know. And then nothing ever happened. He apparently decided it would be a bad idea to fire me over that kind yeah. of thing. But that was just the go. first time I was threatened with being fired. <laughs> I mean, good on you that you did not cave to that pressure. But it sounds like that this was not an isolated occurrence. Were there other instances where you were asked to essentially compromise your integrity? For 27 years, there were other instances. <laughs> it was, it was, it never stopped. That is incomprehensible to me. I it, really, that it, is hard it to is. believe. It's terrible. And so for the first time in my life, I decided to become political with a small P, like a, a bureaucrat politician. Like an operator. Which you have to be. <laughs> yeah, sadly. Well, so let's let's follow that thread a little bit because I assume that, let's assume the best of people. I assume the people who were feeling the pressure above you in the organization were feeling it from other entities. You know, in your book, you go into the FDA spending a lot of energy responding to influence from just an incredible variety of stakeholders. There's, you know, the executive branch, there's Congress, there's courts, there's press, private industry, activists, academics. Can you help us understand the FDA's relationship with some of those stakeholders? Sure. I mean, you know, first of all, you have to start understanding one thing. FDA has been around since 1906. And right. they have continued to accumulate literally power, such that one author said that in the 20th century, there was no regulatory agency in the world that was more powerful than FDA. And that's because they're very good at, at what they do. So if you think about it, uh, they work for the president and the presidents are supposed to oversee them. 
But every president, Republican and Democrat, has said it's nearly impossible to control the administrative state, that is, all the agencies that, that they oversee. There are hundreds of thousands of employees. They all have their own little agendas. And it's very, very difficult for the presidents to do anything. Um, so that's a problem. Congress, they just don't oversee FDA. They're afraid of FDA. And um, so there's not a lot of oversight there. Interesting. Why is Congress afraid of the FDA? Well, FDA has very complex issues, very hard for Congress people who are really busy, you know, with lots and lots of things, mostly getting reelected and raising money. They don't have a lot of time and their staffs aren't very good at overseeing these complex issues. I get it. But it means that FDA is kind of more free to do what they want. So right. they hold Congress at bay. The courts have up until recently and generally will give them deference to how they interpret the, their statutes. Then they have other people, academics, they generally give grants to that kind of buys them off. Yeah. And then when they go in to Congress to ask, you know, which they do every year for more money, they actually have large food firms going in testifying saying, yeah, FDA should get more money. There is a reason for that. Large firms usually get regulations that are easy for them to comply with, but hard for small firms. So it puts their smaller yes. competitors at a disadvantage. I, I want to go into that issue a little bit later, the issue of big companies versus small companies, because that, that feels like an important topic. But before we go there, let's talk about one other constituency, consumers, and where they rank in that hierarchy. I think consumers and small businesses both are at the bottom. When I first came into FDA, you know, I truly believed in what we we're trying to do. I thought these are important issues. And over time, I found out, well, initially when I got there, I was told this, that uh, and this actually happened with the lead acetate rule. I said, this rule won't do anything. Why are we doing it? And my boss at the time said, Richard, we don't have to solve problems. All we have to do is appear to solve problems. We have to do something <laughs> oh, no. about it. And no. that never left me. And I noticed more and more that was the case. Once we passed a regulation, no matter what the regulation did, it didn't matter. It looked like we had addressed the problem. Right. And, th and that leaves consumers and public health in, in, in last place, if you will. What a mess. Okay. So let's talk about some of the, you know, in your view, the biggest and most dangerous problems that face consumers today that the FDA is responsible for. And we can live within the domain of food, but feel free also to talk about stuff outside of food. Yeah, well, I, I do think it's obesity. I, I think that is probably the number one, and it's going to get worse. Right. You know, there was a Harvard study that projected that by the end of this decade, which is only eight years away, half of this country will be obese. Um, FDA plays a role in that with food labeling. Food labeling has not worked. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's really not going to be the answer. Putting calories on foods hasn't really changed anyone's behavior as far as we can tell. Right. Sticking with obesity, and I don't think you you made this connection overtly in the book, but one of the impressions that I've gotten both from, you know, what we've learned from your book and also other research that we've done is that intended or not, the combination of the industrialized food system where people eat a bad diet and Combine that with a for-profit healthcare system that then profits from the multiple diseases that result from things like obesity is kind of the perfect dystopian partnership. 
What do you think about that first? And, and do you think the FDA has played a role in that? I don't personally think that is the exact issue. I, I think it mm-hmm. is an issue. I think certainly uh, food companies, like every other company in, in this country, are there to make a profit. The problem is we have no idea what a healthy diet looks like mm. because nutrition science is the worst science that we have. And so we've got people out there hawking books, you know, on diets. Some say, well, you got to have a high carb diet. Some say you have to have a low carb diet, high fat diet, low fat diet, on and on and on. And the truth of the matter is, one, we don't know. And two, what we're beginning to find out is that one diet probably isn't right for everyone. That different people with different genetic backgrounds, different underlying health conditions probably need different diets. So I think in my mind, a bigger problem, and this is why uh, basically companies can sell whatever they want, is because we just don't know enough yet because the science is so bad. Well, that, that, that's a good point, I think, to pivot to another aspect that you touch on in your book. I, you believe that entrepreneurs are solving many problems that the FDA can't or won't. Can you talk more about that? FDA has recently announced they're going to start looking at technologies. So the first thing that they're going to do, and this is going to be tremendously helpful if we can get it done, is using blockchain, the same thing that you use for cryptocurrency, in order to start recalling things faster. For example, this technology could, in theory, reduce the time it takes to trace the origin of a contaminated food outbreak from two weeks down to two seconds. So that does several things. One, if you can trace things back very quickly, you can find out what the root cause was. In other words, what actually went wrong that caused this problem? Right. More importantly, it gets bad products off the market more quickly, and it also doesn't basically indict everybody. Right, yes, which sort of leads to something that you've hinted at already in this interview, which is that the playing field is not necessarily level between small companies and big companies. Can you talk more about that? So there's a law, the Regulatory Flexibility Act, says we have to take into account you know, what the impacts of these things are on small producers, and if we can, to give them some kind of relief. And Given the fact that the benefits weren't that great, I said, well, at least let's exempt some of these small firms or make the requirements easier on them. Uh, We didn't do that. Of course, all the large firms didn't want to give small firms a break because, they say, it's an unlevel playing field. They have much more influence over FDA, and this is true in any regulatory agency, than the small firms do. So the small firms get driven out of business, and I think it's a shame that we have two different laws that are supposed to protect small firms, and we're still not doing enough for them. One of the other topics that you you touch on and that, that I've encountered in other environments is the topic of conflict of interest. One of the things that I just have a hard time getting over is government employees leaving the FDA and going to work for the corporations that they're trying to regulate. And you give a a very poignant example of a person who wrote a regulation just so that they could jump out and get a job consulting on that same regulation to help corporations figure out how to wend their way through it. Is that common? It's hard for me to know. I don't have data on how common it is. I certainly saw it often enough. The law allows it. What they do say is that it has to be a number of years before you can come back and lobby the FDA for that industry. But you can go out and work for them. You can tell them how to comply and you can make money. 
I could be wrong about this, but I think a lot of people feel, you know what, I work in a quote unquote low wage government job. I should be allowed to go yeah. out and make money like everybody else. I sort of serve my country in this job. And, and I have some sympathy for that. But again, like you say, it seems to be something wrong if you can be a part of writing a rule and then, you know, write it in such a way that you can go out and profit from it. Yeah, I mean, this is a really hard question, so I don't expect <laughs> an answer, honestly. But how do you solve that problem? You know, it, it's just a great question. I, I, I wish I, I did know, but I, I'm pretty sure it's not the worst problem FDA has. What's the worst problem? The fact that they're not solving any problems. The fact that decades right. and decades go by, uh, their their budget keeps going up, they get more people, people believe in them, they believe that they're keeping us safe, and that it just keeps going like that. And the fact that you can go to Congress every single year and say, we've got to do something. One out of six people are in this country getting sick from food poisoning. Every year for 30, 40 years, you're saying the same thing. Congress goes, oh my God, that's terrible. We've got to give you more money. <laughs> well, no, so sooner or later, you got to start saying, okay, you've got to do something different. So just to be fair, are there any big wins that you would point to times that the FDA has gotten it really right? Oh, a a absolutely. And, and first of all, let me say, a lot of it is the system. It's not the people. There are a lot of great people that work for FDA. They're very smart. They're right. very dedicated. They believe in it. But unfortunately, they, <laughs> they, they've run out of ideas. But one thing I think where we got it right was trans fatty acids. This was a case where initially... We were just going to ask firms if they wanted to voluntarily label it. Trans fatty acids are worse for you than, than saturated fats. So that was the mm. bottom line. We really needed to do something. So we kind of went round and round. There's a long story about it, but we ended up with mandatory labeling and companies sort of got the message and they began pulling trans fatty acids because they're added to most foods. So if they're added, that means you can easily take them out mm. as opposed to saturated fat, which is just a part of the food. So they started taking them out, and then eventually adding them has become illegal. So I, I think that's probably one of the best things that we did. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think people should know about the FDA? I do think right now, with the commissioner saying our food safety system is broken, with what has been happening with infant formula, which FDA incidentally played a huge role in why that happened. Mm. For 40 years, they've been telling firms who want to come in, start making infant formula, they've said no. They've kept it at six firms. Oh, no kidding. So they created essentially the monopoly that then right, hurt, the, hurt the whole country. Exactly. Exactly. So when you had one manufacturer drop out, of course, there's a huge problem. So with, with these problems coming up, I think the curtain has fallen down and we see what's going on behind the curtain. Yeah. You couldn't have a better time to start thinking about doing things a new way and, and actually trying to solve problems than just appear to be doing about something. So I'm hoping now is the time. That's a nice note to wrap up on. So let's just say that you're the FDA commissioner for a day or, or a month or a year for whatever period of time is necessary to make real change. What would you do to help the FDA achieve its stated mission, which, as it says on the website, it says, as in the past, the FDA strives above all else to safeguard the health and well-being of the American people. What's the one thing you would change about the FDA to help them achieve that goal? I would, I would retask them. I would say, look, we're not going to pass all these regulations. Let's start looking at these new technologies. If we think 
they're not completely safe, that they need some sort of adjustment, let's focus on those. Let's promote them. I'll just give you quickly a list of things. Precision fermentation, genetic engineering, 3D printers are coming along, consumer nutrition devices. They're going to have to go through the medical device, basically pre-approval thing. We've got to get those through faster. Those are going to help consumers eat better. Nano packaging, where we have smart packaging, consumers when their food is becoming spoiled. All of these things, I would say, let's start looking there. That's the future. Those are the solutions. Let's start looking at real solutions and stop trying to pass these regulations. They, they were fine 100 years ago. They're not fine now. So I would retask them. Love that. Okay, Richard. On this show, we have a tool that we call the BS scale that we use to measure the gap between word and deed. And our scale goes from zero to 100, zero being the best, zero BS, and 100 being the worst, total BS. So what score would you give the FDA? Well, mostly I'm qualified to talk about the foods part of FDA, so I'll just focus on them. On that scale, because you know, they say that they're protecting consumers. They say all these things and they're not doing it. I would give them about a 75. So it's 75% 75. Of, of what they do in foods is bullshit. Okay. Room for improvement. All right, Richard, thank you so much for being here today. This was a great conversation. And I also want to thank you for writing this book and doing the work that you're doing post your time at the FDA. It's incredibly important and we thank you for it. Well, thank you again for having me on. It's been great. Well, that's interesting, if not totally disconcerting. Earlier in the episode, Lauren Etter posited that the FDA had fallen short due to a lack of resources. But Richard, a former FDA employee, says that the organization floundered in spite of a consistently increasing budget. If there was a harbinger of bullshit before, there now seems to be a flashing neon arrow. But to be fair, we've yet to explore the biggest interagency. Buckle up, folks, because next, we're looking into the FDA's Center of Drug Evaluation and Research, right after this. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. 
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Okay, folks, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Gail Van Norman to the show. Gail, welcome to Calling Bullshit. Well, thank you, Ty. It's a pleasure to be here. Gail is a clinician and professor at the University of Washington. She writes and teaches about the medical research process, everything from the FDA to commercialization to how animal testing works. So... The reason that we're doing this episode on Calling BS is that the FDA has come up a couple of times on this show, and our research left me with the impression that the FDA sometimes gets things very right, and sometimes it gets things very wrong. Would you agree with that? I would. I think the the FDA operates under constraints that are imperfect, and even the best of organizations tasked with such a complex mission are going to have misses and hits. Overall, the FDA has had a number of spectacular hits and pretty notable failures, too. Yeah. So let, let's get into some of those, because I'd, I'd love to have you start out providing, you know, an example or two of times when the FDA has truly lived up to their mission and really gotten it right. Okay. Well, so let's start with thalidomide, because it's a, a sort of a classic historical example of what can go right and wrong with medical research, as well as what happens at the FDA. Thalidomide was an anti-nausea drug introduced in Germany in the 1950s, and it was considered one of the safest consumer drugs ever to hit the market. Because it was so safe, 
practitioners really picked out its use in pregnancy because nausea during pregnancy is not only a misery to women, it can be dangerous to the health of the mother and the fetus in utero. And so having something that controls nausea and vomiting is very important. The drug had been tested in animals prior to human tests. It had been tested in, I, I believe the number is something like 50 or 100 different species of animals, including mm. rats and mice and dogs and cats and armadillos and ferrets and rabbits. It was considered such a safe drug that it was not required that you have a prescription to use it. Uh, the drug manufacturer gave it away free to its factory workers, mm. to pregnant factory workers, to use during pregnancy. Wow. Wanting to expand the market into the U.S., the manufacturer submitted the drug for review with the FDA. The committee reviewing thalidomide was headed by Frances Oldham Kelsey, who just so happened to be the first woman to hold the position. She later joked that they gave her what they thought would be the easiest one they could possibly give. And whether they did that because she was a woman or she was new, we'll just leave to speculation. Anyway, she read the data and something about it didn't ring true with her. She didn't like it. And she said, I'm not going to approve this. I'm going to stop you. And I want to see a few more studies. And just a few months later, on Christmas Day in 1956, the first baby was born in Germany without ears, a little baby girl. And that wow. was followed by over 10,000 cases of severely deformed infants that were born and probably 20 to 30,000 cases of in utero deaths. And the U.S. saw exactly 17 cases of thalidomide deformities, presumably in the children of mothers who brought the drug in from out of country. We were saved that plague because we never approved the drug in the United States for that use. I mean, that actually, I had a galvanic response to that story. Like, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up to make me think mm -hmm. how close we came to a total unmitigated disaster, you know? Yeah, it, it, it really is true. And let, let's talk about COVID also, because mm -hmm. that's fresh in everyone's mind. And that's clearly a case where, you know, I mean, it, it seemingly the normal process takes forever. And it just it feels like COVID vaccines just magically appeared. How did that happen? It was a miracle. Incredible, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself two and a half years ago when COVID hit. And I have, in my distant medical background, I have a background in immunology. And I remember people coming and asking me, well, how long will it take for us to have a vaccine? And the average time to get a vaccine created for a new disease is 15 years. So it's it was I mean. like, so right away what was happening was the the government was saying, we'll have a, va a vaccine for you in a year. And I was going, not on your life, you won't. Right. It's just no not chance. going to happen. No chance. But of course, there was a chance, due to several important factors all occurring simultaneously. First, the U.S. government created a public-private partnership offering $10 billion to pharmaceutical companies to start immediately making and testing vaccines. Second, the mRNA vaccine had become available. This new technology created a way for the body to show a facsimile of the virus to itself making testing on humans much easier. And finally, the 21st Century Cures Act allowed for emergency authorization and the quick release of the vaccines. All of those things came together. Right. It's just amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So thalidomide and COVID vaccines, yay FDA, truly, 
and and they do so many more things right as well. Those are just a couple of examples. But yeah. let's let's pivot to where they get it wrong. For for me, because we did the research we did, Purdue Pharma comes to mind and the OxyContin crisis. So the thing that that shocked me about the Purdue situation and I did not I did not understand this prior to doing this research, but there are people at the FDA who have to write the language that goes on warning labels on drugs. And there are different kinds of warning labels. And the big thing in in Purdue's world, OxyContin, was addictiveness. Any opioid heretofore had been deemed to be addictive and had to carry a label that said it was addictive and, and would be prescribed in that same way, i.e. very sparingly. And Purdue figured out a way to get the warning label written in such a way as to avoid any language of addiction so that more doctors would be inclined to write prescriptions for it. And my understanding of this story is that the person who wrote the language actually holed up in a hotel room with the executives from Purdue, and they all crafted that language together. And so this gets to a larger issue, obviously, which is sort of the revolving door or the, I would say, fraught relationship between giant for-profit industries and low-paid government workers. And further, to sort of add insult to injury, once the language had been crafted, once OxyContin was approved and being sold across the world, that person left the FDA and took a job at Purdue Pharma, you know, kind of (laughs) closing the circle, as it were. And, you know, that story really disturbed me. It outraged me, honestly. And I would love to hear your take on that and how widespread a problem like that really is. I think what you're getting at is a real problem in that there is a variously porous interface between the kinds of researchers who work with and within the FDA and those that work in commercial industry. And so people do switch teams. And that's perfectly legal right now, is it not? Oh, sure. I mean, the current commissioner of the FDA, Robert Colliff, was an executive for, I can't remember the name of the research company that's a subsidiary of Alphabet anyway. He made $2.7 million a year in salary, and he used that. And I'm not criticizing him. I don't make it, make it sound like it was nefarious. That was actually a selling point for his appointment as the commissioner to the FDA because he knew the ins and outs of commercial research companies. So you can make an argument that it's helpful. And by the way, his salary there right now is now $300,000, which is considerably less. And he put in a lot of agreements to say he would not participate in owning, selling, talking to. You know, he self-restricted to say, I'm going to make sure you know who I work for, Right. you know, who my boss is. But other people have not been quite so clear about it. And so you have somebody who works on an FDA committee and they have a drug presented to them and the people who are presenting the drug whisper in their ear, wow, we really think your help has been really valuable and we'd like you to think about coming on as a researcher or a head of marketing in our company and they offer you a two and a half million dollar raise, it can be a little hard to turn that down. Turn down, down. right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so there are connections which 
between the FDA and the commercial world, which if properly aligned are helpful because it can give the FDA insights as to what the company's doing. But if they're not properly aligned, can lead to conflicts of interest and to the detriment of the safety and health of the American public. Right. So the FDA is a government organization with a mission to protect us all from the effects, intended or not, of private for-profit interests. So, right. so let's talk a little bit about money. How does, how does the FDA receive its funding? Well, the FDA used to be back in the 19... 19- 20s, it was all government funded. It just came out of the general treasury fund for the FDA. Now, about 45% of the FDA's funds come from something called user fees and application fees that are paid by the drug companies to get their drugs reviewed. When that was first proposed, there was a lot of concern that this would create a conflict of interest for the FDA, because a lot of their funding would come from the very people they're trying to... Regulate, yeah. Uh, But it became so popular because those user fees were enacted because the FDA was woefully short-staffed. Congress enacted this as a way specifically for the FDA to hire the people it needed to do the work. And it led to a big reduction in throughput times, and it, it accomplished exactly what it was supposed to do. So it's still popular to this day. And how much do you think the FDA is affected by lobbying, either by big drug companies lobbying on the Hill to change laws and regulations, or patient advocacy groups lobbying to influence the way the organization is is funded or regulated itself? Well, both affect the FDA. I mean, it's not immune to them. The FDA acts, is funded, as I mentioned, 55% from congressional funding. And Congress is affected very heavily by patient advocacy. You get patient advocacy groups getting Congress to write both good and cockamamie laws all the time with regard to health. And so the FDA is not immune from those effects. The other thing, I I would say that there's no, it's hard to say that there's a direct effect like, you know, um, GlaxoSmithKline pays their $2 million drug fee and that makes the FDA approve the drug. That doesn't happen. But the other kind of effect is hard to regulate against. The individual who sits in an influential part of a committee, who, who then is favorably impressed by a drug company about their drug in various ways and advocates for it. Those do happen. And individuals that sit on these committees can make big differences in what the FDA decides to do. One of the things that is just true is that our healthcare system is run largely as a for-profit enterprise. And is that part of the problem here? (laughs) Oh, sure. <laughs> or is that the whole problem here? <laughs> that, might, that might even be the whole problem for all we know. I mean, I suppose there are good aspects to commercialization because it does, in an ideal world, promote competition and innovation. But it also promotes manipulation and profit-taking. And neither of those serve patients at all. They serve the companies that make the drugs. Yeah, and their and we're shareholders. Talking about, well, that's right. I mean, we're not just talking about the, the company making a profit, we're talking about unimaginable amounts of money. We're talking about a drug generating $100 billion in profit. Yes. 
$100 billion. Yeah. So this is money that will buy anybody's soul, right? Maybe even mine. I don't think so, but you never know. <laughs> well, and no, like <laughs> you know? it's an f- interesting question to ask yourself, right? Is like, what's my yeah. number? But in the current system, the consequences for breaking the law often take the form of fines. Yeah. But with profits of that size, you know, would it be fair to say the fines are just a cost of doing business? Oh, absolutely. It, it's it's amazing. I mean, what you see in the media, what the American public sees is the Sacklers paid, what was it, 13, 13 billion. Billion, billion dollars. Well, uh, weighed against what did they make? Oh, yeah. Even if it's Drop in the over bucket. 100 over a hundred billion, it's less than thirteen percent of their whole profit margin. And remember, it's not just the profit; it's not just the actual dollars that go in the bank. It's how much their stock is worth. Right. So, if you're making a hundred billion dollars in profits, your stock becomes worth a, a huge amount more. And these companies are run by individuals who have heavy stock interests who may have individual conflicts of interest with doing the right thing. Right. And more and more, we're talking about dollar amounts that seem insurmountable in their ability to bribe and attract people into behaviors that we would hope we wouldn't see in this industry. Right. And, And, you know, just to contrast that, to make this really clear, how much money would a typical FDA employee take home if there is such a thing? And how much, can we contrast that with an average pharma executive, even just roughly? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, the pharma executives take home millions of dollars. The average FDA salary is $110,000 a year. Okay. And their top executive makes $300,000 a year. So it's considerably less than anything the commercial environment can offer. Right. Yeah, and it just seems like there's a massive incentive for these big companies to try to figure out how to game the system in one way or another. What I, I think it's not just there's this incentive. There's virtually no disincentive to do it because if you're that rich, you can just pay the fine and move on. Doesn't even matter, yeah. Um, doesn't matter. You actually factor that into the cost of developing the drug, the cost of putting the drug out there. Yeah. Well, that's terrifying. So, Gail, another way to look at our show is fundamentally it's about trust. And it's just incredibly important that we trust institutions like the FDA. Literally, lives are on the line. And honestly, I can understand someone who has lost trust in politicians today or in big pharma or even in the FDA you know, this is the same institution that approved Oxy. So what are some things that you think the FDA should do to try to rebuild trust with people? I think, first of all, we need to start with Congress and say, who do we have in Congress that's sitting on the committees that give the FDA its marching orders? Frankly, I can't, I, I can't tell you who those people are. I should be able to, but I can't right now. And do I trust them, particularly when I well know that many of our congressional representatives are, for lack of a better word, ignorant of science and how it works and don't care to learn it and (laughs) pander to sort of the conspiracy theorists who want to think that we're all out to get them. So I think we need to look at that and ask, should there be special qualifications for people who determine how this agency works? Right. I think overall the agency does a remarkable job given the mission that it has and the number of 
opportunities for failure that it has, how relatively few it, it really has experienced. I think we need to look at how we can reduce conflicts of interest that we've talked about within the agency so that we don't have people who are pretending to serve the FDA but are really serving a commercial interest or serving themselves so that they can position themselves for a, for a well-paying job with the commercial companies. I think that would be helpful. And I think we need to have real penalties for pharmaceutical companies that openly commit criminal acts. This is in the criminal code now. Yeah. Purdue did things that were criminal. Yeah. And that perhaps money is not the price those people should be paying. That people, like there jail should time, be people, right? There should be real prison time assigned when those sorts of things happen. Because a CEO who knows that their signature on a piece of paper might put them in jail one day may think twice before signing it and may have better oversight. Yeah, okay. All right, Gail, this is really my last question. On this show, we have a tool called the BS scale. And the BS scale goes from zero to 100. Zero being the best score, meaning zero BS. 100 being the worst, total BS. So on that scale, what score would you give the FDA in achieving its stated mission? I would give it a really good score. I think that to do its co the complicated job it does, to do it with the high degree of success that it's had in protecting the American public for nearly 200 years now, I think that they deserve a score of a 25 and that they've done really, really well. Gail, I want to thank you for being with us today. Thanks for uh, calling bullshit. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. It really has been. Folks, it is time to make the call. The FDA is a complicated institution with huge responsibilities. We couldn't possibly cover the entirety of what they do in a single episode. But with the help of our three experts, we're still able to get enough insight to answer the fundamental question. Does the FDA strive above all else to safeguard the health of the American people? Although they've had some notable successes, we're calling bullshit on the FDA. But, as always, we're not here to just curse the darkness. When we come back, we'll speak with an expert in FDA conflicts of interest to see if we can light a few candles in the halls of this bureaucratic behemoth. My name is Genevieve Cantor. I am an assistant professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm trained as an economist and I study regulation of biomedical technologies, the FDA, and conflicts of interest. Thank you for being here and welcome to Calling Bullshit. Thanks. Happy to be here. What we're here to do is talk about ideas for helping the FDA better live their purpose. And before we get into those ideas, I don't do this in every show, but, but I wanted to actually say something to our listeners because I've been feeling some of this stuff myself as I prepped for this episode. 
It's really easy, and I would say even understandable, when faced with a problem as complex as the FDA, to basically just shrug and give up. And it's it's easy to just declare that the problem is impossible and to kind of move on. And I want to ask our listeners to suspend their disbelief for this section because we really do want to explore actions that the FDA or the executive branch to whom the FDA reports could actually enact to help the FDA build better trust with people and really deliver on the promise of keeping all of us safer. It's such an important purpose. And I really believe we need to take an optimistic point of view here because giving up on it is unthinkable. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest initially. So let's get into some ideas. Genevieve, I'm going to ask you to go first. In two minutes, can you tell us the one thing that you would do to change the FDA? So if I were emperor... Yeah. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline farm to store in days not weeks that's 80 acres farms did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate but not 80 acres farms their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled they stay fresher for longer in your fridge My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall. 
and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. It's the one thing I would do is to replace our current approval process with a system where the firms are given conditional approval of their products and they have to seek renewal of approval every, say, 10 years. So in the current system, a firm applies for approval of a product and receives that approval until basically the end of time or the sun burns itself out or something. So with this 10-year sort of renewable approval, you could incentivize the monitoring of how well drugs are working because that will be required to get your renewal for the approval. You incentivize the monitoring of how safe drugs are because, again, that's part of the renewal process. That will allow us, the government, to pull drugs off the market that turn out to be not effective or that turn out to be unsafe because sometimes you don't see a lot of safety events in the small clinical trial populations and you only see them in the broader population. I love that idea. That is an incredibly smart idea. Not surprisingly, you are the expert. So well done. I, I think that's a fantastic idea. We'll, we will return to that, I'm sure, throughout the conversation. So here's my idea. The FDA is much more important to all of us than is currently reflected in the salaries of the people who work there. Their job is literally to, to save lives, to protect us from harm. But there's a pretty massive salary gap between the average FDA worker and the average pharma exec or food company exec, which has resulted in this revolving door where regulators from the FDA move to higher paying jobs at food and drug companies. And I think that the knowledge that that reward is there waiting for them if they play ball while they're at the FDA has the effect of creating huge conflicts of interest. And so my idea is to change the FDA through compensation reform, pay salaries competitive with the private sector, because right now the FDA is kind of a drab government bureaucracy and it attracts people who are up for working in that kind of job. Closing the salary gap would begin to level the playing field. When you know you pay people more money, you attract better people. And their job is so incredibly important that that would be better for all of us. So salary reform is the idea I want to put on the table. But let's um, we can we can get back to that. I want to I want to talk more about your idea because I think it's so smart. Because when things and and a lot goes right at the FDA, right? But but when things go wrong, it's not often on day one. You don't know that a problem is a problem right out of the gate. And yet once something is approved, it's been released into the wild, and you almost can't get it back in the current system. And so that I think that would, you know, really increase people's safety. What barriers do you think we would encounter if we decided to try to actually enact that today? Who would have an issue with that idea? Probably the same parties that have blocked a lot of reforms in this space, the pharmaceutical companies. Um, I suspect that some of the arguments that would be presented might be that it would be even more costly and time-consuming for firms than the existing approval process is. Uh, it might delay access to some products. But overall, broadly speaking, it's not politically feasible because the drug companies would intensely oppose this kind of conditional approval. 
And when they oppose that kind of thing, how does what form does that opposition take? So every five years, there is legislation related to authorizing the budget for the FDA. Um, in fact, there's actually currently the reauthorization happening this year, and we expect to see it passed um, at end of the summer, actually. And so usually it's through, you know, lobbying legislators as to the features that might go into this reauthorization package. So if, it, for example, if it were to be introduced in one of these five-year reauthorization bills, pharma as well as individual pharmaceutical lobbyists would oppose the inclusion of, of such a conditionality. And the lobbyists are there to threaten by removing financial support from Congress? That's right, through you know campaign uh, contributions. Hmm. Yeah, that sort of leads us to a discussion around conflict of interest in general. So, so I want to uh, I want to go there, but before we go there more deeply, what do you think of the idea that I put on on the table? This idea of like leveling the playing field from a salary standpoint. Does that make any sense? I like it, and I think you've tackled head on one of the issues with the approval process at the FDA, which is they do lose a lot of very good people because the pharmaceutical companies are able to you know, entice government workers who have a lot of experience and knowledge away. I do see some constraints while we're on the topic of you know, pluses and minuses. One might be that these are civil servants. And so what you describe is just a generic problem among the civil service. So are there some rules related to parity, relating, you know, GS scales and so on that you would have to consider? I see. Just the way government workers are compensated, compensated. has to be essentially universal. They're or standardized, yeah. Standardized, right. In some way. A, a second issue is just where that money would come from. Because the central source of conflict, actually, even with funding the FDA, is user fees. So basically requiring pharmaceutical companies to pony up you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to finance the review process. Now, it's not earmarked so that if Pfizer submits a you know, drug for review, that you know, people will necessarily favor the approval of that drug. But financially, the FDA and its operations are funded in large part by pharmaceutical companies through these user fees. I would consider that a tax in a way of mm -hmm. getting your product to market. And um, I, I think that that makes sense. I mean, I do realize it gives them a voice in the world of, of money and politics. And so raising those fees probably would be unpopular with them. I want to continue to talk about different Conflicts of interest. You wrote a chapter in a book called Conflicts of Interest in FDA advisory committees. That was eye-opening for me. Can you first just explain what an advisory committee is and, and how that actually works? Sure. When a drug comes up for approval, the FDA you know, has the final say. But oftentimes it doesn't have the internal expertise or perhaps even the person hours to commit to doing a full review of a particular drug or, you know, the evidence is complicated and it needs external advice. So frequently it convenes these advisory committees to review the application for a particular drug. The people on these advisory committees are not 
formerly employees or full-time employees of the FDA. They are external experts. They're sitting at universities, research institutes, think tanks, and they are physicians, researchers, some statisticians. But one of the important things about this is if you work for the government, there are very clear ethics rules regarding your financial ties to industry. Um, If you were working at a university and then you get called on to be on these advisory committees, you know, these people sitting at universities have relationships with drug companies. They are consultants for them. They have the research funded by them. And so one of the things I looked at was whether the financial ties of these external experts who are called upon to advise whether a drug should be approved or not, whether the financial ties that these experts had to drug companies was associated with whether they voted for approval of the drug or not, and how open they were to approval of the drug. Right. And it sounded to me like you had a specific hypothesis going into the work, which actually you, even you were surprised by the results. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, conventional wisdom, certainly in the ethics literature on conflicts of interest, which is if you have, you know, one tie to industry, you know, that's not good. But if you have multiple ties, that's even more not good. That's like really, really bad. Even worse. Uh, (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then so we found two things. One was it turned out that when we compared how these experts voted and we compared people who had one financial tie to those who had no financial ties, uh, we actually found that people with a single financial tie to a company were more likely to vote in favor of the product uh, sponsored by that company than people who had no financial ties. So there did seem to be some bias, but it was only if you had a single financial tie to a company. Uh, In contrast, people who had a lot of financial ties, so people who had ties to Merck, Pfizer, lots of companies, did not appear to vote any differently on average than people who had no financial ties. So people with a lot of ties did not appear to be biased in how they voted. And so we talk a little bit about why that might be the case. One, you know, hypothesis that makes sense to me is that, you know, a lot of times when people have a lot of financial ties, it's because they're really, really good at what they do. And so a lot of companies want a piece of their brain. Um, it's, It's not, so they're not hiring these people so they could be hired guns to say what the company wants them to say. They're hiring these people because they're just really good at advising them. Yeah. Some of it is just, they literally want great advice from smart people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we did find some bias. I mean, I think the other thing that came out in the paper was that, you know, the type of conflict matters. So the hypothesis that I presented earlier, one tie is bad, many ties worse, is sort of a the simplistic rule of thumb we had that doesn't acknowledge the fact that different kinds of ties matter for influence. And so the other thing we found was that it did not seem, for example, that experts who had ties through research funding, so their research was funded by the drug company, were biased. But the kind of financial ties that really mattered were uh, either you were you had an ownership stake uh, in the company, you had some kind of stock in the company, which makes sense. And also a very strong effect came from whether you were on an advisory board for the company. Lots of times you're, you may be on the board and you have a fiduciary responsibility for the company to act in, uh, the, in, company, the, country, in the company's in, in best interest, interest right? Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a clear conflict. Like that that seems like that should be illegal. I mean, a lot of this should be illegal, to be honest. You would think it would. And if you read the rules, people who do have that kind of financial interest um, should not be participating in the advisory committees. But there is also a process that allows the FDA to make exceptions. And many times they make exceptions. And so you have people with these kinds of financial ties on these advisory committees. But things that don't matter, consulting, research, you know, other kinds of ties don't matter. So I guess the paper was really advocating for a more subtle policy related to conflicts of interest. Yeah, more disclosure, right? I mean, it seems like that should be fair. If the FDA is tasked with, as it says on the website, Above all else, safeguarding the health and well-being of the American people. If that truly is above all else, then, you know, you should have to disclose all of your financial ties and it should be acknowledged that there are financial ties that are okay. In other words, if you're just being paid as an advisor for a company, that's you being paid for your professional expertise and that's fine. If you own a piece or you're on the on the board of one of the companies that's in question, that would disqualify you. And I don't understand why we can't enact rules like that. What would prevent us from from closing those loopholes? That's a great question. The two arguments that I've seen presented are that we would no longer be able to find people qualified enough to be on our advisory committees if we just outright banned the participation of people with financial ties. Because all the all the really smart people are already on the take, essentially. Like, well. <laughs> or, you know, or as my study indicated, you know, a lot of people want a, want a piece of their brain. So it would be difficult. And we can kind of see this because in the 2000s, the FDA, in fact, capped the exceptions that could be issued for people who had these kind of financial ties. Um, so, Prior to this, the FDA issued just exceptions willy-nilly and just basically said a lot of the apparently disqualifying financial interests didn't matter. In the 2000s, with one of the reauthorizations, the percentage of people who had these exceptions, and what you saw was, of course, a decline in people who had these exceptions and these financial ties. But what you also saw was more positions on the advisory committees being vacant. A longer time it would take to convene these advisory committees because they would need to spend more time to find people who were not conflicted. Yeah, right. Yeah. I want to delve a little bit more into this idea of trust because ultimately the FDA's job is to make us safe. And without guiding your answer at all, what needs to change so that we can trust uh, the companies that are making our food and the companies that are making our drugs. What what about our system has to change to create more trust? I have to say I'm a little conflicted about this. I mean, the mission of the FDA is pretty clear, it's, you know, to ensure, among other things, to ensure the safety and efficacy of the drugs that are marketed in the U.S. The mission of the drug companies is not that. It is to make money for their shareholders. And so, you know, I do wonder whether it's realistic um, to expect organizations whose objective is profit making to not do what they can do to make profits. But I like the way you framed it because you framed it as a system, you know, not just 
the FDA. But I think the onus is on legislators, policymakers to create rules that put guardrails on drug companies that right. still but that still incentivize them to do the right thing, I think, as as you you might have framed it. So things that minimize gaming, how clinical trials are run and analyzed, things that incentivize the collection of data on effectiveness and safety, and sort of tie the things that we want, which is quality information on safety and effectiveness with things that drug companies want, which is access to the market. Right. Okay. Genevieve, is there anything else that you think our, our listeners should know about the FDA and things that either could or should change? I do think, you know, the problems we have with the FDA are structural. You know, there is that structural tension there about how can we get, how can the agency have independence, be based on the science, but, you know, still have a commissioner that is serving at the pleasure of the president. The other structural tension, and we see this, you know, in our discussion as well, is, you know, you can have an agency that approves drugs almost too fast. So they approve drugs that don't work or you have safety issues, but you've increased access to the drug. But that's opposed to, well, that, you know, the alternative is to have an agency that approves things too slowly, which is there are drugs that it's preventing from being out on the market that people need to get access to. Right. Um, We do need to uh, have information systems that adapt, an approval system that is adaptive in the same way that, you know, all other systems in the world that we live in, you know, adapt to new information. And so hopefully that proposal and yours as well sort of adapts to, you know, what we know Mm. and we can make better decisions that way. Okay. So last question. On this podcast, we have a tool that we call the BS Index. And the BS Index measures the gap between word and deed. And it goes from zero to 100. Zero is the best score, so zero BS. 100 is the worst score, total BS. And so the FDA today says that it strives above all else to safeguard the health and well-being of the American people. What score would you give the FDA? So I would say that my determinant of the BS score is based on two main things that I think cause me to be worried about the FDA. One is Mm. the degree of industry influence that leads it to diverge from its mission, as well as the degree to which it's vulnerable to political influence, you know, from the executive Mm. branch. Overall, I, I think the structure of the organization gives us generally reasonably high quality decisions. I would give it a 45. Okay. That was great. Thank you so much for being here today, Jenny. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me and having us think together about this issue. It was, I really, really had a great time. Thank you. All right, folks, it's time for the FDA to get their official BS score. It somehow feels appropriate that I try to get a little scientific with this one. So if I were to average our guest scores, the final score would be a 48. However, that still feels low to me, especially given Richard's account of basically being told to deliver the results his bosses wanted or risk losing his job at the agency. That's just plain scary. So I'm gonna give the FDA a 55. 
I hope that acknowledges some of the agency's big wins over the years, but leaves plenty of room for some much needed improvement. And FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, if you ever want to come on the show to discuss anything we've touched on today, please know that you have an open invitation. And if you're starting a purpose-led business or thinking about beginning the journey of transformation to become one, here are three things you can take away from today's episode. One, becoming purpose-led is a big responsibility. It means that you're dedicating yourself to managing better outcomes for all of your stakeholders. That includes customers, employees, the community you do business in, and the planet. If all companies did that, we wouldn't need the FDA. The FDA only exists because the motivation to manage for maximum profitability is so powerful in our culture that companies will knowingly sell products and services that damage people and the planet. Purpose-led companies win the trust of all their stakeholders by being transparent, by taking on problems they discover, and by solving them they tend to do the right thing, even if it costs them money. Two, once you know your purpose, take action against it. Since, unfortunately, we do need the FDA to protect us from companies who would do us harm, the FDA needs to do a better job of that. The action idea that Genevieve brought today sticks with me. Any approval of any product is only conditional and time-based and must be re-reviewed once it's been in the market and we can all see the effects that it's actually having. That one change would help the FDA better live their purpose. What are the actions that you're taking to better live yours? Three, simple is better. The FDA story is enormously complex because they cover such a broad waterfront and have so many stakeholders with so many different agendas. Define a simple reason why your company exists. Choose clarity and specificity over fluff. Solve a real problem. Do the right thing by your stakeholders and keep doing that until you win. And if this episode made it through your approval process, subscribe to the Calling Bullshit podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to people speak into your ears. And friends, I'd like to ask for your help. If you enjoy the Calling Bullshit podcast, please take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred platform. Thanks to our guests, Lauren Etter, Richard Williams, Gail Van Norman, and Genevieve Cantor. Learn more about them and get links to their work in our show notes. And many thanks to our production team, Hannah Beal, Amanda Ginsberg, D.S. Moss, Haley Pascalides, Parker Silzer, and Basil Soper. Calling Bullshit was created by Co-Collective and it's hosted by me, Ty Montague. Thanks for listening.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.